0: On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Maribel Mori. She's the founding executive director of the Miami Institute for the Social Sciences, which centers the work of global majority scholars in the social sciences and neighboring fields. She was raised as a Cuban exile community of Miami, is a historian who in 2015 co-founded Histphil, histphil.org, a web publication on the history of the philanthropic and nonprofit sectors, with a particular emphasis on how history can shed light on contemporary philanthropic issues and practices. She's the author of White Philanthropy, Carnegie's Corporations, An American Dilemma, and The Making of a White World Order. And it's my pleasure to have Maribel More join me on The Deep Dive. How are you?
1: Thank you so very much, Philip. It's an honor to be on The Deep Dive.
0: So I'm really excited to have this conversation. As we were kind of chatting before we got started, you know, this writing of this book was one that you've defined kind of in in chat talk as a struggle. (laughs) So I, I want to give you an opportunity to, you know, walk me through a little bit about, you know, the genesis of the book as a project and how this came to be.
1: So I've had this book, An American Dilemma, in mind or, you know, with me since I was an undergraduate. So I was living in Paris, reading Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, trying to understand her analogy between race and sex, because as a Latina woman, I was not yet exposed to intersectionality and was already enculturated to understand these two parts of me or my whole self as two different parts. And while I was reading her book and reading through the race-sex analogy, she relied a lot on this guy's other publications. So Gunnar Myrdal's An American Dilemma. And I thought, what is this book? Why she have to rely on him? What is the Swedish economist doing writing on race in the U.S.? And the more that I started, just the, the fascination just increased because over time, I saw how enamored many Americans were with this book, An American Dilemma. And specifically, I was saying uh, white liberals very much enamored with the book. And that got me into researching more of the intellectual roots of it when I was in grad school. And then also, as I came to realize that there was a foundation behind it, the institutional roots. Before then, I didn't know very much what foundations were, but as a Cuban American from Miami, I was very intrigued by this concept of a group of a sector of people in a capitalist society trying to address social problems, but they're not exactly Che Guevara's. So who are these people? How far do they want to solve the social problems they're addressing? How do they define them? And what were they doing funding this project? That was the beginning. And the struggle, I would say, was in the writing process of it. One of the first, it went through three presses. So the press that came out out with the book is the third one. And in the first one, they said I was doing an injustice to the memory of Gunnar Myrdal. And I found that uh, comical since I was learning Swedish to really understand him as a full human being. And just generally, the struggle was ideological because there's a lot of people, again, like I mentioned, white liberals who are very enamored with Gunnar Myrdal, like this image of a Swede who just was born with a very clear sense of uh, equality, and as if equality isn't a difficult topic or a definition to think through, right? Or that it's com- you know, already a that you have a white author writing on racial equality in the US and a book that it seems to have much more traction with white readers than with Black readers. And then just generally, there's a tension and resistance to think about discussions of racial equality in the U.S. in the second half of the 20th century, having any connection with colonial African administration before the Second World War.
0: You know, what's really interesting is a bunch of things. Like I usually show the person that I'm talking to like the notes and the, the kind of questions that I have prepared. I actually didn't do that. I forgot to do that. So I'm going to show you right now. Like, there's a ton of stuff here, <laughs> since you can you can still see me. That I want to try to get through. But what really struck me is as you were talking about Gunner's work and the particular fascination that liberals have, white liberals have, with an American dilemma. It reminds me of two other writers that I would put into that same category. One of them is, is foreign, obviously, um, Tocqueville as someone who has observed American culture. And he, he did so kind of in that 19th century, very early 19th century, you have an American dilemma that you've already talked about. And then I would add like Patrick Moynihan, Mm -hmm. though he, he is clearly American because he was a a longstanding Senator, but his Moynihan report Mm -hmm. and, and how it discusses the Negro Family, which is the title of it. You know, as you were explaining the way liberals link themselves to these things, I feel like those are other texts that are also sort of sacrosanct in the mind of the white American liberal. And I'm curious if you've encountered those works in the same way, or why do you think they cling so much to an outsider explaining what's going on in the place that they actually live?
1: Mm, Thank you for that, Philip. There's so much there. So you're sending a lot of those great questions at the same time.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I (laughs) tend to do that. Like I'll kind of seed a bunch of stuff and then be like, go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Myrtle many times has been compared with Tocqueville and the Moynihan Report definitely is in the line of history of social science with an image of trying to impact public policymaking and a white director as lead. So why they cling so much, I think at least I'll speak about an American dilemma. One, it's a very favorable image of white liberals. So he purposely presented a positive image of white Americans in the book. The point of the book was to guide white policymakers in shaping a national program on Black Americans. That was the intention of Carnegie Corporation for the project. And as a grantee, Myrdal continued that intention in the book. So in that spirit, he tries to, he presents white Americans as a particularly moral people who are unlike, and he's writing this during the second world war, unlike Germans who are equally violent and commit genocide against the minority group, Jews, notoriously during the second world war in the U S context, black Americans, he's saying black Americans, white Americans actually feel guilty about this. They want to be better people. So if you're reading the book, you're reading a book that says you are a moral people, I acknowledge all the anti-black discrimination you perpetrate, but you actually want to be better people. So that's, I think one. So it gives like this. So you're reading it, it's almost like reading the worst sins, right? The national, the original sins of the country, and but then being presented with it as something that you yourself as a white liberal reader could correct and that there's a way out of that sin. So I think that's something critical. And in the definition of equality that he provides, it still privileges white culture, white institutions. So there's nothing wrong with whiteness. It's still a positive. Everything about whiteness. And so that the definition of equality is assimilation into that whiteness. And in a similar way, you can imagine that Moynihan's report could be seen from that lens too. Not really challenging anything about white supremacy in different cultural forms or in society generally.
0: I think this gives us an, affords us an opportunity to go back even further to Carnegie as a person and and then as an institution because what I what I really found so interesting is the way in which philanthropy has has clearly changed but it has such an, a particular place in our minds because oftentimes and I'm just talking about laymen people who likely aren't thinking about these issues as much Philanthropy, I think is it's likely seen as having no agenda, right? Like mm-hmm. by and large, oh, these organizations are out here trying to help do mm-hmm. something, whatever mm-hmm. the something might be. Obviously, there's all types of different philanthropic organizations. And I think the book does in a, in a very clear way is contextualize the mission of the individual who started the foundation, in this mm-hmm. case, Andrew Carnegie, with how that mission then unfolds. Mm-hmm. And I want to give you an opportunity to 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 discuss like why you thought it was important to really place them fairly contextually as a part of, of this story.
1: Thank you. And I think it's important in what you said too, to highlight that for most people, philanthropy is seen as having no agenda. And to make a distinction here, Philanthropy can be any form of of a love of mankind, right? At its very core definition. So it can be any one of us volunteering our time, our energy for family members, for strangers, for community members, again, through our volunteering of time, through just general inclusiveness. Now, that's different than what we generally call elite philanthropy or big philanthropy. And what that is would be people with extreme wealth. Who can come into all of our, you know, uh, civil society spaces, our civil society organization, our movement organizations, our cultural spaces, and dominate them by the sheer amount of money that they can pump into those spaces and define their work? So it's helpful, I find, to talk about it as lobbying, but through the nonprofit sector, and that's very distinct than the everyday giving and volunteering that you know a lot of us as Everyday philanthropists might. In this book, we're studying that level of lobbying of elite philanthropy. So, Andrew Carnegie, at the later part of the 19th century, early 20th century, starts creating philanthropic, and again, I use the word philanthropic because we're used to it, but you could just call them foundations if you don't buy into the idea that they're necessarily philanthropic, uh, uh, representing a love of mankind. But institutions to turn around some of the wealth that he had accumulated in the private sector as a steel titan and to address issues that he thought were important. And he saw this wealth redistribution process as a good alternative to socialism. He wanted to convince people around him in the US that there was no need to turn to socialism, that you know, a capitalist society could still do this wealth redistribution, just keeping it in the hands of wealthy individuals such as himself. So his mission, one of the missions that I explain in the book is his vision of international peace and international order. Because the book starts with the question of how and why did an American Dilemma come to be? Who funded it? What intentions? And did it meet those intentions? So the the president of Carney Corporation at the time financing an American Dilemma is a gentleman with the name of Frederick P. Keppel, Columbia College dean. And he ran the organization from the 1920s to the early 1940s. But as we know, a president does have power, but they exist in a social structure. Much like a grantee could have intellectual freedom, but exists in a social structure in relationship to the funder and also to peers. So my work as a historian is going into the archives and understanding those dynamics between these networks of people. So what organization did Keppel inherit when he became president in the 1920s? And I explained the role of the dead hand, of Andrew Carnegie's dead hand. He had passed away in 1919, but there was a central board member, James Bertram, who had been his personal secretary, who ultimately or subsequently had a lifetime seat on the board. And he helped shape the organization's understanding of the organization's geographic scope. So at the time, the organization was limited to working in the U.S., Canada, and the British colonies. That might seem commonsensical, knowing what these categories are, but they're not. At some level, the question was, do we include the Philippines under the category of the United States? If we understand the U.S. as a global empire, what are the British colonies? Is it what is coming out of London and how they're distinguishing colonies from dominions, for example? And he specified to Keppel, Andrew Carnegie actually meant it as a term of art. He had meant it as white communities and not just communities of white people in the British empire, but areas where they could dominate, where there are settler communities that could dominate. So this means that we will not fund in West Africa, we will fund in East Africa and we will fund in South Africa, even though it's officially a dominion and not a colony. New Zealand as well, and never India. So that's so. I hope that answers some of that question of the dynamic between Andrew Carnegie and the corporations' work.
0: It definitely does, and it really opens up a broader context about, you know, because we we have all these big titles, right? Like an American Dilemma, and you know, there's this big issue of race and influence that sits at the center of all of this, and you know i kept thinking as i was reading how much we are still engaged in so many of these similar conversations today as you mentioned the the idea of philanthropy or lobbying it cuts across both sides of the political space in the sense that we have bill gates who people you know depending on where you land on the conspiracy table will say oh he's probably more in the white liberal camp right but then you have The Koch brothers, right? And who are on the other side of that. And the Sacklers, you know, drug dealers with their amazing amounts of money that they can spread around to philanthropic and art institutions around the country, despite killing thousands of people with opioids. But putting that aside, I I say all that to say that, you know, a part of what makes this so interesting was the idea that private hands whether industry or philanthropy are better stewards of our resources as compared to taxes. So there's this private public debate that seems fairly entrenched in this country. And I'm not saying it started with Andrew Carnegie, but he has seemed to be a big proponent of it. So I'd, I'd love for you to kind of you know, share your thoughts on that as a, as a dichotomy, this idea of private being better versus public.
1: Yeah, no, thank you for that. So he definitely thought I would lean listeners to check out Gospel of Wealth by Andrew Carnegie, where he spells out his alternative to socialism being philanthropy in this form. And he distinguished philanthropy from charity. So he talked about charity as almsgiving versus philanthropy as something that would not undermine the incentives of pulling yourself by your bootstraps in a capitalist society. So in this example, he would fund libraries or church organs, which might be less intuitive or known to people. But libraries being a space where you're still pulling yourself by your bootstraps at work in the factory, but then somehow get, as he related to his own childhood, inspired by readings in a library. And the church organs being a space, too, in your local community where you're exposed to beauty once a week. So, yeah, so he thought, keep this money in private hands. One distinction that I see over the long 20th century into 21st is that much like Andrew Carnegie and the first generation of foundation officials, including Keppel and the network, they saw great value in collaborating directly with people, public policymakers, and strengthening the state in responding to societal problems. So the first study they do in South Africa is a poor white study published in 1932, and it's in dialogue with white policymakers there to address a perceived problem in their maintenance of the white black color line, white supremacy and black subordination, which they thought was key for international order, international peace. And as a little footnote to that, there is this layered assumption that it would be a threat to international order because it's assumed that white people would respond with violence if these forms of white subordination and black subjection are are challenged. So yeah, and then the next study is an African survey through London, and that is also in dialogue with policymakers as an American dilemma was more of a, a risk for Keppel because as much as it was modeled on a colonial project, in the US context, anything that was national, anything that had to do with black Americans was perceived by a good segment of people as a threat, even if it's coming from a place of trying to stabilize white supremacy because of the history of the Civil War and reconstruction amendments. So this project did not have a, a sponsor and was not being requested by white policymakers in the US. So this is why it's a bit different than the prior two, and Keppel oversees it more directly from a few blocks from his office. But yeah, so that was, even though it's, let's keep this money in private hands, let's collaborate with the public policymakers. And to this point too, even Rockefeller at the time, they considered Myrdal their winning horse. Like They they had really bet on a winning horse because he was translating the social sciences to public policy programs in Sweden at the time and passing and helping to pass public policies. The difference being today is that instead there's a lot of let's keep the money in private hands and let's keep our experimentation of public goods in private hands. So instead of pumping it as a state resource, let's create charter schools, for example. So there's still that public-private collaboration, but where it should ultimately land, that has shifted to ultimately land and remain in private
0: hands. That was one of the more frustrating things about, about reading the book. It's a, it's a good book, so the reading wasn't frustrating, but it's the the seeing how tough it is to unravel the interest being served by these organizations, by these people who are by and large invested only in maintaining white supremacy, right And then seeing things like education being used on one hand, education is good, but it's also used as a deterrent against other political movements and you and you referenced the concerted moments and push against, Someone like Marcus Garvey, for example. Mm-hmm. So how do we unravel those, those sort of Gordian knots, so to speak? Because, you know, I always try to connect things to what's going on right now, mm-hmm. right? And you mentioned charter schools. That's a another example of mine where, you know, I have really good friends, you know, who are engaged in educating and focused and Their solution is, you know, public schools are terrible, so I'm going to start a charter school or or something like that, right? So sometimes the solution seems to just cause more more of the problem, but maybe that's me being cynical. So again, probably dumped a lot, but I want to, it's the unraveling that's really the key part of that to however way we navigate.
1: Yeah. So one thing is that life is complicated. So our friends, when we're talking to them, I don't know how you have your dinner parties, Philip, but- I need to talk about charter schools. But yeah, no, I think that W.E.B. Du Bois was a guide for me on this point too. And I wrote a piece that's coming out in an edited volume on Du Bois, a Oxford handbook on Du Bois, on his relationship with philanthropy. And it's complicated because as much as he would have very tough words for white philanthropy, the moment that they that these organizations are perhaps interested in collaborating with him on an encyclopedia, he's willing to bend a bit. And I think we've all been there and we can relate to those difficult moments. So that's one. But as far as a book in education, education definitely was used by these white figures as a means of domination of Black people. So the form of education being the Tuskegee model. And Andrew Carnegie was very explicit in its relative usefulness for colonial administrators across the British Empire in a speech he gave in Edinburgh in the early 1900s. And it's also explicit in the first generation of staff members and advisors in these organizations in the early 1900s, that it's a way to further in their minds the economic interests of white Anglo-Americans, while at the same time placating or complimenting their need to feel like they are friends of Black people. Because a form of white supremacy that these actors really support and are most comfortable with includes a sentiment or a perceived sentiment or an advertised sentiment that they are sympathetic to Black people. And that makes them uncomfortable in the late 1920s in South Africa. And they, this group of Carney Corporation leaders pivot to advisors in London. Now, as far as education i've thought about like what makes it what makes it so different how can we understand or what are lessons learned from this experience for today uh, with so many white funders eager and trying to run to fund black organizations and i would say that one thing is question and i'm speaking to the white funders what are your priorities what are your priorities in funding this black organization or these black movements if it's if the larger priority is stability then Let's learn because this is exactly what these earlier funders were thinking of maintaining international and international stability and this kind of funding to black schools being one part of that puzzle. They would have funded very differently if their first priority was black liberation. They would have funded the people that they were actually fearful of. They were actually fearful of black liberation, and yet they were still funding black institutions. So thinking through what would it mean to fund Black liberation? And what are you willing to risk in social instability? And why do you assume that there would be social instability? What do you know about white resistance to Black liberation?
0: And, you know, it can all seem very daunting as well. You mentioned Du Bois and having to, you know, I'll say compromise in some cases, and you're correct that all of us have been there to a certain extent. and, And I haven't faced the stakes that he did. So I know this is not said in judgment of of someone like W.E.P. Du Bois. But what I want to offer is how do we take these types of historical lessons and blueprints and now intervene in the ongoing projects that we see today? You know, like, again, as I was reading the book, you could swap out the names and swap out the dates. And the energy is still there, right? So how do we take this and begin to change the conversation? Because if anything, as, as you noted in the answer to an earlier question, that the philanthropists, quote unquote, of today are even, they have more resources than than ever at a time when we've had a stripping of many social safety nets globally, but definitely here in the United States. And it feels at the same time that people are just more and more comfortable to just cede our power to other folks, right? So Jeff Bezos can do whatever he wants because he's also going to give $100 million to, you know, Van Jones, you know, another terrible actor. So how do we pull this back? Can we pull it back?
1: Yeah. So the project, the book is talking about deep, deep networks of power and (laughs) power is not easily displaced. I hope with the project that because of that, uh, honestly, it was a really hard project to publish. And uh, I've done it for myself and for a lot of other global majority people, BIPOC people who've wanted to know, we sense that some of these definitions of equality that are so prominent, including an American dilemma that still influences our definition of equality, that there's something lacking. And I use the word in the in the back of the book, it says that uh, you know there's like historical evidence now of things that a lot of scholars before had sensed about an American dilemma, from uh, Stokely Carmichael to Ralph Ellison and many others. And it's actually I've been thinking about that more because I heard someone you know open up their eyes when they said evidence when they read it out loud, and I thought you know people sometimes we know you know the fact that I have to spend a decade in the archives to prove to whom to whom am I proving this? to so many people who already know. So I would say for a lot of us to continue the work that we already know, which is that questioning the definitions of equality that dominate our spaces. And if we have a sense that they're not full definitions of equality, to keep investigating it and to keep calling it out. And in that process, to bring out the voices of so many other scholars who've been sidelined and their analyses from Oliver C. Cox to Charles... Hamilton, to so many other women who just aren't even mentioned. So, we need to read so much more from the people whose ideas on equality have been sidelined just because it's so threatening to the status quo. And in that process, too, that we know. So, like, and by the way, when I say questioning equality, I mean not just the public, but funders, because as much as funders might not realize it, these ideas are implicit in the way that they finance different grants and different groups. It's assumed, they assume. That, they, that equality might mean entry into white spaces or that it requires, you know, touching the hearts and minds of white Americans or that it should be done at a pace that's comfortable for white Americans, specifically white liberals. Where all of that is a way of promoting a definition of equality that sits comfortably with white supremacy. So how do we, dis- we should have national definitions of racial equality that are disentangled from white supremacy, because if they're still entangled, then what kind of equality do we have?
0: It it reminds me of a very recently, obviously there's many social movements out there. Um, one in particular is is calling for police abolition or defunding the police are two particular program points that are raised in progressive circles, for example. And a common pushback is, well, this sounds crazy, people aren't going to like it, we need to call it something else, the fact that you call it this works against us. And there have been people like citing old New York Times, among other leading papers of the day of and before the emancipation of enslaved persons and saying, oh, they were against the abolitionists at that time. They were saying that calls for abolition were, you know, too hysterical. They were hurting their own cause and and all that kind of thing. And so I, I set that up to frame that oftentimes these conversations are happening on a particular cultural ground and you talked about the bootstrap analogy you know this is something that you know is is referenced by andrew carnegie and i've been hearing it all my life growing up in the reagan 80s and its language still being used today so i would offer that these are are as much as it's public policy it's also culture like we're so used to debating on these grounds that we don't even question the the terminology, the language, the framing, and all of those things. So from a cultural perspective, you know, how do we start to interject notions of philanthropy to whatever extent we do in a different cultural context that centers those who have been uncentered, blacks, women, et cetera?
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Jared Logans was speaking at a Cafe in Casa episode earlier today. It's a Miami Institute collaboration with NCOPES. And he was saying that people who challenge racial capitalism you know, pay consequences. And so I think, and we know that from movement culture. I'm thinking here, Tomiko Brown-Nagin's book, Courage to Dissent is another one where we see the real sacrifices of, of, of challenging uh, central power structures. And so- I think from a cultural perspective, I think we have to reawaken to that, that, that there are real consequences and it's its hard to have it all, I guess. Right. But we are in a moment of stagnation, of not. where do we go from here? Like we can either just look the other way and just keep on going. There are people who are like, for example, there's so many people asking, where do we go beyond neoliberalism? The Hewlett Foundation has quite a bit of money behind this project, but many other groups too. How can we think beyond the Cold War binary of neoliberalism and communism without really rethinking our definitions of racial equality, which were at the center of this binary? And how can we actually try to move beyond that binary without also calling ourselves our courage, like the courage within us to speak truth to power?
0: And, you know, I want to give you also an opportunity because in a portion of your bio that I didn't read In light of wanting to get into the conversation, I didn't want to spend an an inordinate amount of time reading the bio. You left the tenure track in order to do the work that you're doing. And, you know, tenure again is one of those holy grail moments, right? It's it's often also used to frame issues of, of worth, of equality. You know, they've been high profile tenure conversations very recently. You know, Nicole Hannah Jones and Cornell West and and I'm sure tons of others that I'm that aren't coming top of mind. So I want to give you an opportunity in light of this speaking truth to power, how does you know you made that decision to step off one particular track and, and go on to another? Like what was part of that thinking that led to making that decision?
1: So one was that I was in the archives, and the the book is dedicated to W.B. Du Bois and my own daughter, and hoping for a world free of domination. And he's the book can be read as a love letter to Du Bois in many ways. It's a proof, historical proof of what he suspected all along about these foundations, and you'll see him interwoven in the narrative. And he was, had a precarious relationship in the academy, right? And when I'm reading works, I'm absolutely moved by his work. And so, at the end of the day, it was a question of in this narrative of research, who do I want to be? And it was not just because of Du Bois in the archives, but here I am. I got an Andrew Carnegie Fellowship for two years to do research on the lived experiences of Black Americans and philanthropy. And I am a non-Black Latina with this research, getting funding from Carnegie Corporation, writing critically on, on Gunnar Myrdal, an American dilemma, and thinking, okay, what what role am I playing in the academy? Am I Doing this work to equally leverage, like just another higher prestigious job, because there's much more meaning to this work. So that's one the ethical echoes, or like just the thinking through that. Two is Du Bois and how much sacrifice he had to make to speak truth to power. And three, realizing that there weren't even any women in this network Black women, Latina women. So as I'm looking at this network, I could see Du Bois in the periphery, but beyond that, there's not even any BIPOC or global majority women. So there's so many issues with the academy in the past and seeing the echoes in the present, both in the publication process of the book. This book, if I had really tried to stay in the tenure track, would not have come out the way it ha- had. This book would have, extracted, would have extracted any mention of any connection between colonial African projects and an American dilemma. It would have extracted a lot of any critical assessment of connections between Myrdal and uh, Carney Corporation's intentions for the project. So I could have sat and written a book that would have pleased you know, the establishment, which is still very much in publishing and in the academy, very much dominated by white Anglo Americans and elite institutions. Or I could write a book that was ethically right according to the research I was doing in the archives and also for the audience that um, I intended from the start. So all of that got me to thinking, just like, let me break, like, let me let go. Let me let go. Just write this project. And let me do this. I care so deeply about knowledge production in the academy. Like we had to do something about this. So that was the beginning of the Miami Institute for the Social Sciences. I resigned from my position with two years notice. And during this time, I taught and then I had a sabbatical in Sweden and thinking through the, the establishment of an or, uh, organization that could be a utopia for so many of us who have issues with how knowledge is being produced in the academy, the hierarchies of it, the white supremacy of it, and having a space to really discuss that and plan for a more egalitarian future in knowledge production, a more globally egalitarian one.
0: Well, as a a reader, I am 100% thankful that you took this book down the road that you did as a part of a structure, as you said, to make knowledge creation look and feel and serve in a different way i found it to be essential so i'm i'm giving a pre thank you before we we get into the final two segments of the show but um you know it's such important work and so thanks for taking the road slightly less traveled
1: <laughs> thank you for reading it philip that's that's an <laughs> I, honor thank you
0: I, absolutely i mean when I'm having a conversation with someone like you and the book goes into so many really deep tributaries, it's like I don't want to give away the spoilers. So keep in mind, listeners, that I left a lot on the table here because I don't <laughs> want to give away every aspect of of the book because then you wouldn't buy it and read it, <laughs> which is a which a big which is a big part of it. but the the connections and the weaving through history of you know, so many arguments that that I feel as as a um someone who's really engaged with history and particularly black history throughout the diaspora, having West Indian parents. You know, these are actors that I've seen debating and and fighting for years. Booker T and w b and w e b. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey that I mentioned earlier. So, your book captures all of that and more, <laughs> so it's, it's it's. And I it's, did
1: want to jump in and say, yeah, that go for it. Yeah. I was really inspired by just in that move from tenure track or just putting all my eggs in that basket of the book by so many people who are doing the good fight in the academy and also in philanthropy. So I did want to honor in the contemporary space so many good people uh, doing that work, at, including Tiffany Willoughby-Herard at UC Irvine, Caroline Shnaes Hossein, and Toronto and and so, so many others. So we're never alone and we're in community. And part of the purpose of the Miami Institute is to bring us even further into community and in dialogue on our different work in the moment.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I look forward to seeing more of that work come to fruition. So in the time we have left, I wanna to get to the final two segments of the show, Off the Dome, which are some quick fire, rapid fire questions. Um, first thing that comes to mind. And then we're going to get into the drop where we give a a recommendation to the listeners of something that they should check out, be aware of, whatever. So off the dome, I have four of them. So you ready? Okay. All right. First one, you know, are you an early bird or a night owl? I don't know how (laughs) birds get all this attention, but they do. So there you go.
1: If I wake up at five o'clock in the morning, is that an early bird? I think so, right?
0: Hell yeah, that's an early bird. (laughs) How much earlier can it be?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I like mornings.
0: I mean, I'm probably both. Like I tell people all the time, you know, I burn it on both ends, but I love early as well. So yeah, five o'clock counts as early because I don't (laughs) even do five (laughs) o'clock. You know, you obviously deep scholar, deep thinker. If you can think back to, you know, when you were a kid, to whatever extent you were thinking about what you wanted to be, professional ambitions- What were your professional ambitions?
1: A writer and traveling always in a train, like just always traveling and writing. I I don't know how it would blend.
0: (laughs) So did you see yourself traveling in a train to write or writing in a train as you traveled?
1: Yeah, exactly. The second
0: one. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So all your writing was happening on a train going somewhere.
1: Going somewhere. It's kind of funny. Mm -hmm.
0: No, that's a very romantic vision. I like that. (laughs) Was it like a modern train or did you just see all trains as being like like steam engine trains? Because I, I, no matter what the train, it's either like, <laughs> if I'm thinking Asia is a bullet train, no matter where it it is, but any other train to me is literally like a steam engine train.
1: Yeah. I think, again, it was like Miami, growing up in Miami, everything was an image, right? We never had fall seasons or real cafes. So like anytime I got a little speck of that, it was nice. Okay. And uh, trains we didn't have, but yes, it would be more of the romantic. It wouldn't be a speed train, okay. like the paper you know, placemat. No, it was more romantic than that scene, okay. probably 1920s.
0: Got it. I've Got long it, lived little...
1: in the 1920s.
0: Okay, right? <laughs> It's funny how our brains are locked into certain images no matter what. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, as we're recording this, we're in the beginnings of the holiday season, depending on when one determines that starts. And- by the time people hear it, it will be after the holiday season. So we're going to kind of catch them off guard a little bit. But what is your favorite part of the holiday season, To however however you define holiday?
1: My favorite part is the day after. So as Cubans, we celebrate Noche Buena, which is the night before Christmas. And the day after, a family tradition is to get the lechon, the pork, and put it in sandwich format and drink it with a hot chocolate. And that sounds delicious. That's my favorite. It's pretty casual the day after with family. Awesome. You know, the closest yeah. 50 people of your family.
0: A- absolutely. The day the day after is always the best day. Mm. And finally, if you look out on the landscape, what do you think is one of the most important things we should be doing collectively as a society, but we just aren't?
1: Collectively as a society, and this is yeah. maybe left field a little bit, we should all have read or be reading Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism. And I say that because So many times this binary Republican, Democrat, Democrat, Republican, communism versus neoliberalism really fails to see how people have lived in tension or trying to create space between the two. And that's what we see in Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism and the humanity that so many people trying to find space between the two are trying to achieve and the connections between the national and the global. Sorry, that was my last point. Yeah. No, 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 absolutely.
0: Mm -hmm. No, that's a great one. And there's a a fairly new edition of that out. I think Mm -hmm. the third edition, Mm -hmm. Robin D.G. Kelly, I think, wrote the foreword or the introduction for that. And Tiffany
1: also wrote a piece there too. Okay. Will it be her
0: ride? All right. See, pick me up where I falter. Okay. And you do
1: do it for me, Philip. It's okay. We do it for each other.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I want to give all props where I can. Anytime I forget, it's probably because I didn't know. (laughs) So forgive me. Um so and now we, get,
1: me. we uh, all do it.
0: <laughs> we all we all do it, but we all need to have grace with one another when we do. So that's an important part of this. So now we get to the drop where we get to, you know, share something that we want the listeners to engage with. The drop can be anything at all light, heavy. There can be more than one. So do you have a drop ready for me?
1: So an idea, or we're we talking about like.
0: Could be anything. Anything. Yeah, literally dropped. I've had poems, I've had songs, I've had albums, I've had books, I've had movies, TV shows, doesn't matter.
1: Okay, I'll do one fun one and then one that's a bit more uh, (laughs) in line with my, okay, everyone this holiday season should really listen to El Burrito Sabanero, which is a holiday song that we listen to in, in Miami every year, and it has to put you in a good spirit. So have a fun one with that one. And then I do the drop. I really, really wish that we would have critical and engaged conversations on equality. And I and I say this because there are different stakes at hand. Like, not we can't all subscribe to you know uh, calling out white supremacy in certain definitions. I some of us are not in safe spaces to do that, or in more difficult you know economic situations or professional ones. But we just being much more alert to the ways that we define and talk about it and the ways that we might still be rooted in forms of white supremacy will go a long way. And just even thinking through and opening our, up our minds to where we need to go next in this national community and internationally.
0: Those are perfect drops. So fun, but then bigger con- context, right? Can't go wrong there. Um, I have a drop as well. And Again, at the time that folks are are listening to this episode, this movie would have already come out, but Steven Spielberg created a new version of West Side Story. My drop isn't that version because I haven't seen that version yet, so I can't speak to it. Um, but I will recommend the original that though despite all of its obvious flaws, its it's not having one of the primary characters actually be Puerto Rican, that's a big issue clearly I still think the movie is fantastic and worth engaging with. And I'd also wanna highlight as a connection to that, the recent Netflix documentary on Rita Moreno, who is another hero of mine, someone who clearly is a, is one of the main principles of West Side Story. She won an Oscar for her role. And the documentary on, on Netflix is a, is a good one. It highlights her work and her career. So as companion pieces, the original West Side Story, and then learn more about Rita Moreno. She is a giant, and those so those are my drops. <laughs> so I want to thank you so much for for being on the show with me. This has been great. The book, like I said, is spectacular. In my mind, it, it's this volume, and in its connection, so much more to how these forces work. Sometimes for us to a certain extent, but then mostly against us in the bigger context of things. So I want to thank you for engaging with me, being on the show and writing this book. It's been a pleasure having you on The Deep Dive.
1: Thank you, Philip. I've had a great time on The Deep Dive and I love your structure on it. So I look forward to coming
0: back. Yeah, it's a wild ride, right? (laughs) Yeah. I I
1: always
0: tell folks, like, be prepared. This can go in any direction. (laughs) I like (laughs) it. it. (laughs) but But it usually ends and lands in a great place. So thanks again so much for being on the show. Thank you. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at Far To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.